This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. And I'm Ariana Brocious. This past Earth Day spawned a new ripple of climate activism. Activists protested at the headquarters of BlackRock in New York City, smeared paint on the casing around an Edgar Degas statue, and even tried to block the entrance of the White House Correspondents' Dinner in D.C. There's a spectrum of action ranging from confrontation to collaboration. While some people are throwing paint and blocking streets or events, Others are filing corporate shareholder resolutions, and some are using technology or policy levers inside organizations. Let's listen to an excerpt of one of the events that really got people talking about the efficacy of climate activism. Last October, several activists from the group Just Stop Oil threw tomato soup on Van Gogh's painting Sunflowers to protest the production of fossil fuels. What is worth more, art or life? Is it worth more than food? worth more than justice? Are you more concerned about the protection of a painting or the protection of our planet and people? That was a powerful moment that got a lot of people talking and had some people scratching their heads, including people who are sympathetic to the climate movement. Right. I mean, even though the painting itself wasn't actually harmed, it was a pretty polarizing protest. And sometimes that's the point. Activism has a storied history of bringing important issues into the consciousness of people who don't want to think about those issues, like civil rights, voting rights, and marriage equality. Many of those protests were peaceful, and I really wonder about the efficacy of recent climate protests. Who is the intended audience? Yeah, but I think there's a really widespread sense of frustration, especially among younger generations, and I think there are a lot of people who feel like we are just not doing enough fast enough. It's gotten to the point where even scientists are reluctantly leading protests. We don't want to be in the streets. We want to be doing math in a quiet room, not necessarily being chained to government infrastructure. That's Rose Abramoff. She's an earth scientist and activist who lost her job because of her activism. We'll speak with her a bit later in the show. First, to put this in historical context and make sense of different flavors of protests, we talked with Dana R. Fisher, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, a non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. She's author of Activism, Inc. and American Resistance. I talked with her about what kinds of activism really bring about positive change. This confrontational activism has gotten much more common. It also has kind of broken into what I think of as two different camps in terms of Uh, disruption. So we have disruption like the disruption that just recently happened at the National Gallery here in D.C., or people who threw food, threw paint, used crazy glue. And and that's the kind of disruption which I'm calling disruption is shock. And that has become increasingly popular. And we see it all around the world at this point, targeting art, targeting meetings, targeting um, performances. There were some activists who stopped a plenary session at the American Geophysical Union recently. In all of those cases, the goal of that tactic specifically is to get public attention. And as many of the activists whom I interviewed for my new book mentioned, not only is it about getting public attention, they want to get media attention and they want to basically reach out and, you know, try to mobilize more people in the general public what they think of as, you know, sympathizers to the movement. 
Though when those sorts of things happen, I have to wonder whether they repel more than they recruit, that that it turns more people off than it says than it wakes people up. Well, I mean, I think that the, the expectation here and the research backs this up is that it will not change minds. This is really a type of activism that's about taking people who are already sympathetic to the cause and who are getting increasingly worried because of atmospheric rivers or because of forest fires or because of this extreme weather that's been happening in Europe or the melting, you know, glaciers or the list goes on and on or, 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 and those people think they need to do something, but they haven't yet mobilized to do anything. That's really the the point for these activists. And in a lot of ways, they use what we call the radical flank effect to push the activism to a more extreme place that mobilizes people to be more willing to participate in moderate types of activism and moderate, you know, support for moderate groups. And there's a lot of research that documents that that works that way. We know that there's what nine percent of Americans are are sort of uh, hard-boiled deniers. There's a big group in the middle that accept climate change is happening, according to the Yale Six America is probably the most authoritative poll on this. And and so what I'm hearing is that it's those people who say, yeah, climate change is happening, it's real, but aren't really doing much about it. It's about activating that disengaged part of of the population. That's exactly right. I mean, I would just say within that middle group. I think that most of the people who are engaging in this more disruptive type of activism are really looking for the more left-leaning of those group even. They're not even trying to get all the moderates. They're trying to get the moderates who supported the you know, passage of the IRA, but they are worried that it's not enough. Mm-hmm, those people. Mm-hmm. Right. And the idea is to bring them into the movement and to support more climate action and more extreme measures to get to the kind of climate action that's necessary. That's the only audience for this type of action. You know, I'm a social scientist who studies activism, and I try to parse out, and my my new research is actually specifically pulling apart these different types of confrontational activism. There's very, very little research about what works, what doesn't, and how it works. So I can tell you what we do know, but unfortunately, what we don't know is so much more, and we really need to to pull this apart better, to see exactly what is working, what isn't. The group Climate Defiance staged what they called a climate blockade at this year's White House Correspondents' Dinner. And it's part of a series of disruptive events. So talk about that in terms of, you know, targeting the national media. So Climate Defiance is one of a number of groups that have been ramping up this type of confrontational performative activism. The, the action that took place at the White House Correspondents' Dinner is a great example of this, where people from many different groups were actually involved in coming out to participate in this blockade. Um, it's, again, like all of these other actions, are completely nonviolent forms of civil disobedience. And the hope is that by being there, where all the media are, it helps to rechannel and redirect attention to the climate emergency and the need for more, you know, strident climate action. And speaking of nonviolence, there is a recent film, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, recently released, portraying some people that could be called eco-terrorists as the heroes. How do you think popular culture like film and TV can influence perceptions of activists? Oh, I think that popular film and TV can absolutely have a huge effect on public opinion, as well as the general public's understanding of an issue. 
the new film is presenting a very specific type of climate activism, which is more severe than anything we're really seeing so far. It's much more monkey wrenching is what we call it. It's destruction of property. And we really have not seen this level, that level of destruction of property yet as a common you know, practice amongst climate activists. That's not to say we won't in the future. I mean, you know, as somebody who actually has a screenplay that is currently being considered amongst production companies right now based on one of my books, which is set in the world of youth, you know, youth activism, I would say we need so much more popular culture to be thinking about and discussing and, and understanding this world. But, you know, how to blow up a pipeline is a you know, fictional depiction that is an important story about a very, very, very narrow subgroup within the climate movement. We actually have a, a recent episode focused on how climate is portrayed in Hollywood titled Lights, Camera, In Action, so people can check that out. Political movements are focused on goals that can be specific, oust a dictator, stop a war, overturn a Supreme Court decision, and less specific and conceptual justice, equality, uh, etc. In the case of climate, there are very specific numbers, overarching numbers, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of post-industrial heating, and many sub-goals, of course. So how do you see the goals of the transition away from fossil fuels in the context of other social movements? I would just say that the climate movement is really very, very similar to these other movements where there are these grand goals, these big goals, you know, climate justice, getting, you know, achieving the Paris goals, which is actually a more specific goal than just climate justice, of course, which is, you know, a just transition away from fossil fuels towards a clean energy future. Um, we see the same thing in other movements. In fact, I think that because there's so much science backing up the climate crisis, the climate activists are more capable of embedding these broader goals within more narrow um, campaigns. So if you take, for example, you know, that investment component of the climate movement, mm -hmm. there there are specific tangible targets, be they at a specific university or broadly right now, there's a growing movement to get fossil fuel funding out of academic research in the United States. And there will be very, very specific targets in terms of goals for a year about shifting uh, faculty support or shifting overall university support. And then there'll be the broader one, which is by getting fossil fuel funding out of research, we'll see more you know, open research that isn't biased by the sources of the funding, which we do know is the case, right? And so I think that for all long-term social movements, you have these kind of stacked goals. The big question you know, in, in a lot of my work is how do we get from these activist tactics to those goals, which in some cases are so far away from the actual tactics and the targets of the activism. Say, for example, when Declare Emergency had the activists, you know, spilling paint on the covering of this Degas statue, how exactly does that lead us to reducing CO2 emission concentrations in the atmosphere to the degree that we actually hold global heating below 1.5 degrees Celsius? That's a very, very, very big, big arc to get there. And, you know, it goes through public uh, perceptions to theoretically getting public pressure to then electoral politics that then theoretically leads to elected officials actually voting in a way that they say they will when they run for office, which we all know is, you know, a question whenever you support somebody to that, whatever they support, getting actually passed and implemented effectively, and then might lead to these goals. 
And so it's such a long and indirect road. Right. And which is why people might choose other more direct things that it's not either or. But, you know, if, if I take personal action, uh, switch out to a heat pump or something like that, it's like I know how much that's done. It doesn't solve the big picture, but it's it's more direct control. Uh, and right. I mean, I would just say, I mean, I, that that's absolutely true. And one of the things that I've talked a lot with climate activists about is the types of individual measures you can take simultaneously. But as somebody who who spent a bunch of time studying this and working with the IPCC on this, we we know there's there's overwhelming evidence that just our individual actions, like, you know, we just put solar on our, our house, is absolutely in, insufficient for getting us where we need to go with regard to the targets needed to meet right. these these deadlines that the IPCC has identified. Right. Necessary and insufficient. In 2014, an estimated 300,000 people attended the People's Climate March in New York City around the opening of the U.N. General Assembly when all the heads of state are in town. I remember observing that from the sidewalk and seeing U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and Jane Goodall, two small people amid this massive sea of humanity. What did that accomplish? Well, actually, the first I mean, I've been studying the People's Climate Marches since they started. The first People's Climate March in 2014 was the first time we had a large-scale climate march like that and demonstration connected with a UN meeting ever held on U.S. soil for climate change, that is. And it really was an amazing moment for collective identity formation and development amongst groups that had overlapping interests but disparate, you know, members, disparate kind of tactics and, you know, ways of working. And we saw people in the streets at that first People's Climate March who came from all over the country. They came from the labor movement. They came from the women's movement. They came from the anti-war movement. Code Pink was there, for example. Um, I mean, it was it was an amazing kaleidoscope yeah. of, you know, civil society in America on the left. And what was really important about that moment was everybody coming together under this umbrella about, you know, stopping climate change. And we saw, you know, the same kind of model play, you know, when you move forward to 2017 with the second People's Climate March, which happened here in Washington, D.C. And we had um, a couple hundred thousand people out for that one as well. Right. And I, for me, seeing the nurses, that was a really big one there. Seeing healthcare workers coming into climate, which I hadn't seen that much uh, to that point. Another New York-centered protest movement was the Occupy Wall Street movement, which was leaderless by design. What's the role of leadership in social movements? Well, so, the, so Occupy Wall Street was particularly interesting. By following the philosophy of being leaderless, on the one hand, it empowered all the people who participated. But on the other hand, over time, the movement did not have lasting power in terms of its specifics of that movement and that movement's demands. However, if we track the people who originally were activated during the Occupy movement, you can see them throughout all sorts of movements through, you know, within the United States today. So it really did have a legacy, but the legacy is moving to other movements. And I think that that's much more common when you have a leaderless movement. In my research around the climate movement, I've actually documented the way that climate justice has integrated economic justice and racial justice and become really a central theme for the activists who are involved in the movement. And one of the things that I believe that harkens back to in terms of the way that justice got folded into the movement and the movement's identity um, and its goals was thanks to the Occupy movement. 
Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help your friends have their own deeper climate conversations. Coming up, maybe there's no one tactic that will move the needle on its own. Many administrations talk about this kind of all of the above strategy for dealing with, you know, energy. I think of it as an all of the above strategy for thinking through tactics of activism. That's up next. Hey, everyone. I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. Let's get back to my conversation with Dana R. Fisher, professor of sociology at the University of Maryland and non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. It can feel like climate activism has had a difficult time breaking into the public conversation compared to movements such as civil rights or anti-police brutality. I'm going to speak for my colleagues who do work um, specifically around racial justice and study the civil rights movement to say that it took years for civil rights to resonate and actually for the movement to become broad enough to put the kind of political pressure on uh, the powers that be in terms of economic and political actors to get the changes that were were the target of the activism. I mean, in the Black Lives Matter movement, it was only after George Floyd was murdered and his murder was actually um, was basically available to everybody through social media that we saw this huge mobilization, which turned into the largest sustained activism in U.S. history. But that was well past when the Black Lives Matter movement began. And you can think about all the other people who had been murdered by police who's, who didn't actually motivate the kind of sustained activism that did lead to some incremental change, but clearly not nearly enough. So I would just say that we're, you know, we're on a long road. And well, I've been studying the climate movement since the 1990s when, you know, climate change started becoming a focus for the UN and, and people started talking about it and, and having these annual international meetings. Initially, when we were doing work on climate change and the climate movement, everybody was talking about um, the precautionary principle, right? So the original idea was we need to do something about climate change because the science suggests that this is going to happen, but we're not exactly sure. And, you know, you really have to do this for the polar bears, not for what's going on outside your window. Um, And today, the world has changed quite substantially. I mean, the world has warmed quite substantially, too. But what we also have noticed is that, you know, a third of Americans said in the past year they had experienced some sort of a climate shock, which is something that was reported by The Washington Post recently. And that really changes the way that the movement resonates. So I don't think we can think back to the 1990s to really think about the climate movement, even though there were people working within the climate movement then. But I think that as the issue becomes more salient because people start to feel the effects of forest fires, of extreme weather, of atmospheric rivers, et cetera, and so forth, drought. Um, We had, you know, the snowless winter here in DC, for example, um, and much of the Northeast. So as that happens, the movement will grow because people actually are starting to be concerned about it. And it's, it's, it's a different process than, say, civil rights. 
where we have, you know, people who have been exploited for too long in our country and treated with systemic racism. In this case, we're talking about something that's outside of society, and many people initially didn't feel the effects. And unfortunately, based on what the science says, we'll be feeling the effects for years to come, and it will become, you know, worse and worse until we do something more. Right. And there's a difference of that lack of that human face, the victim or the the villain that is so clear in George Floyd's murder and, you know, Bull Connor's dogs and those those sorts of things. Elsewhere in this episode, we speak with climate scientist and activist Rose Abramoff, who talks about coordinated diversity of actions. How important is that coordinating different kinds of actions? The way that Rose is describing it is a little different than the way we do in the social sciences, but basically When we think about a diversity of tactics, the way we think about it is that activists have a whole toolbox of different tactics available to them, and that a diversity of tactics is necessary when an issue becomes uh, severe enough, and it's the only way for movements to be able to affect the kind of change that's needed. And we've seen that if we, you know, whenever we look at movements that are trying to push for political change that you need to have people working within the system through the institutional political system at at the same time as people working outside the system as outsiders and even pushing through confrontational activism and civil disobedience, which is, you know, kind of the more extreme, well, not as extreme as, you know, violence, of course, but still peaceful, but the more extreme version of that. Right. And we see that in climate where there are a lot of environmental organizations that try to work with polluters, work with corporations, work through shareholders, for example, to file resolutions with fossil fuel oil companies. And there's other ones who are protesting outside and others who kind of want to be in the boardroom um, and have a voice there. And that's kind of what I gather is the diversity of tactics. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the way I think of it is, you know, the, the well, the Biden administration, the Obama administration, many administrations talk about this kind of all of the above strategy for dealing with, you know, energy. I think of it as an all of the above strategy for thinking through tactics of activism, right? And there's all sorts of activism that's, you know, me as an individual writing letters to elected officials, voting, trying to help support the kinds of candidates that I want to see elected as well as me doing things like lobbying them once they are elected or working with the businesses that I support, boycotting, boycotting, but also I can be outside in the street yelling and even, you know, super gluing myself to something, maybe. In your book, American Resistance, you wrote about distributed organizing, a bottom-up approach to organizing that relies on technology to mobilize and connect people. This was a tactic used by the Bernie Sanders campaign in 2016, built on tools created by former campaigns of Howard Dean and Barack Obama. What lessons can be learned from distributed organizing, and how could it be used effectively by climate organizers? That is such a great question. Okay, so distributed organizing is a great way to get people and reach them without them having to come into a brick and mortar building because it takes it takes advantage of the technologies that we you know I'm going to motion to my phone that we all are carrying around all the time <laughs> and it's it's a wonderful tool and has been effective at getting people to do things like volunteer to phone bank or even go door to door and canvas for electoral campaigns we saw it during 2022 for example However, there's a question about the degree to which it actually motivates people to get embedded within a community of activists, a community of people in, you know, in their actual community, right? And the challenge of distributed organizing 
is using the technology to connect people in ways that then matter on the ground where we live, as well as digitally connecting us to a global network of activists. And that's something that I think that the best example of this within the climate movement may very well be Fridays for Future. If we look at what uh, Greta Thunberg started and the Fridays for Future folks have continued by connecting people digitally, connecting them to call for an action, but notice that besides during COVID, those actions were in person, where people actually were mobilizing to do stuff in their communities, to protest, to have a climate strike, to run campaigns in their communities. And I think that's a great way to think about the, the strength of distributed organizing. The challenge is when everything's online, because it's really hard to, to sustain that kind of activism and for that activism to matter in the same way when it doesn't build these lasting, um, what we think of as thick connections in communities with people whom we know rather than the thin connections that you get online. Right. And there's a term called clicktivist, which is kind of disparaging that you think if you just like something on social media that like you've accomplished something that, you know, just from the comfort of your own home. You mentioned. Well, the, yeah, uh, the good example is sharing a video on TikTok now, right? Same idea. Yeah, that, that changes the world. So you mentioned Fridays for the Future started by Greta Thunberg. And Jane Fonda picked up on that and started her fire drill Friday protests in Washington, D.C. She was arrested five times, brought other big name celebrities with her. What did you initially think of Jane Fonda's protests and what do you think of that now? Tell us the truth. <laughs> so, so when Jane Fonda started, I thought, oh, my goodness, I can't believe she's trying to exploit this, the energy and enthusiasm, these young people on the streets and doing these, you know, these climate strikes to do her own thing. And I did. I, I I made fun of her a little with the red coat going out there every Friday, getting arrested for you know this extremely um, timid civil disobedience, which is she was standing on the steps of the Capitol, which you're not allowed to do. People are a lot more careful about that these days after January 6th. But back this was before January 6th. And so initially, I, I did I did make fun, and I was I was out studying the youth climate movement. So I was actually I was right there on the grounds of the Capitol with the youth climate activists when Jane was doing these events, these Friar Drill Fridays. And so I ended up starting to attend them to just see what was going on. And I have to say that she completely won me over. And initially what I thought was just this opportunity for an older activist, an, you know, an actress to take advantage of her notoriety, to glom onto an issue, it became very clear to me that she was committed to the issue. She brought out people who were experts in certain aspects of the climate crisis to talk about the issue. She brought in notable celebrities to help use their megaphones to get more attention for the, for the conversation that was taking place. And she actually helped to spread the word in ways that, unfortunately, you know, you and I probably can't do by just, you know, going on social media because she has such, you know, such a wonderful platform for herself. And so, I, I thought it was wonderful how she lifted up the youth climate activists. She lifted up a lot of people who are working on climate justice in an interesting way. And, and her work is continuing today. So she won me over as, as much as I did start in the beginning by, you know, being critical of, of her efforts. What you're talking about brings up questions of age and class. So how do those filter into this? Are these movements elite led? Is it all sections of society that lead these movements successfully? Well, okay, so let's start with uh, the age point. Um, and I mean, thing, one of the things that I think is interesting is the way that we initially were not thinking that young people were particularly politically active. And actually, if we look at the period of the resistance to the Trump administration and its policies, which, you know, which started at the Women's March the day after the inauguration, 
in 2017, one of the things that I documented in the work that I did across all the protests that happened, the big protests during that period of time, was how the, the resistance was really fueled by and powered by middle-aged white women. The average age in the streets at all of these events was you know, people 39 and above, mostly in their 40s at almost all these events. And actually at the women's marches, it was always 42 years old for some reason. These are not young people. At the same time, as young people started getting involved in Fridays for Future, what we saw is that young people were becoming more politically active generally. And I think that at this point, when we go out to events, I expect to see people of all ages. In fact, I was just at the Earth Day event in Washington, D.C. last weekend, where my, my research team and I collected data there at the event. Now, the event was a, was a relatively small event. It was organized by a lot of these justice-focused groups and groups that are willing to do civil disobedience. So it's not mainstream environmental. At the same time, what we found was the average age was 29 in the crowd there. So it was a younger group. And I think that this is providing more evidence that young people are involved today. We do know, though, that young people are more likely to be involved in civil disobedience. And that was the case during the civil rights period, too. With regard to class, uh, you know, I've collected data at all sorts of protests, including the protests against George Floyd after he was murdered at the women's marches, the March for Our Lives, and climate protests more recently. And across them all, we see that people who are more highly educated are much more likely to engage in this kind of activism. And part of that, I think, is because um, the more privilege you have, the more capacity you have to take time off to protest, and the more likely you are that you're not going to lose your job or lose your hours and not be able to feed your family. So that makes sense. And while we do see growing diversity racially and ethnically, we still see that most of the people who are participating are highly educated. So that's a place that still needs to get more engaged. And one of the things that I'm talking about in my new book, which is called Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action, is the role that the labor movement needs to play in addressing the climate crisis and the way that we need to move forward by thinking about how labor and climate activism have to be connected together. Unfortunately, historically, a lot of climate action have been not well received by the labor movement. I'll say it that way, particularly, you know, efforts to stop pipelines and to stop a lot of development. And that's changing. There are groups out there that are currently working to try to address that, to try to combine the efforts in a more effective way so that people in labor and people who are working with unions don't feel like climate activists are trying to shut down their work and their livelihoods. I think that will do a lot to help to diversify the movement. Right. There are some people who've said to me that your pipe fitters are the biggest political force slowing down electrification, decarbonization, because they're in there saying, no, we want that methane gas to con uh, pipelines and work to continue. Research done by Stanford sociologist Rob Willer says that protests lose public support if they use violence as a tactic. His studies show that anti-racist groups lost public support if they were perceived as instigators of violence, that people became more sympathetic to the white supremacists if they were perceived as victims. How does that translate to climate as it becomes radicalized, defacing property, not violent yet, but it's some part of it seems to be going in that direction? I think it's absolutely going in that direction. So I know Rob and I know his work, and he actually has other work that conflicts in terms of the findings with the findings that you're talking about here. So there's absolutely 
no question that more research is needed about this because that's one particular study. But then there are other studies that say that it doesn't work exactly that way. And really what we need to do instead of these hypothetical examples of activism, we need to have people exposed to real activism and see how they respond. There is no question, though, that all the research out there documents how defacing you know, property and violence turn people off. But it doesn't turn everybody off. And in fact, a great example of this, a case in point, if you will, is if you think back to the civil rights period, where it was actually the more aggressive activism that did sometimes turn violent, although much of that violence was instigated by counter protesters and law enforcement that led to violent confrontations in the street, is actually the reason why we finally saw the political change that happened. But it was completely unpopular within the general public. And I would expect that if we continue to see climate activism getting more radical, we will see growing dissatisfaction and lack of support for that kind of activism. But still, it may be needed. Right. John Lewis was sort of ousted, I think, from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference because he was seen as a moderate and people were asking for a stronger line. So we've talked about people crossing lines. Scientists have crossed over into activism, as we've heard in this episode driven by increasing floods, fires, and droughts. You go to a lot of these protests to observe them. Have you considered crossing the line yourself to join the protests that you're talking about? Well, many of the people who have done this work of getting scientists to cross the lines have actually approached me and asked me if I would join them. And my my answer is that my my identity is all about bringing data to power And I think that it's extremely important for me to do my research with an objective angle and to not be one of the participants within the activism when I'm doing my research. It also gives me a better platform for talking about my findings when I'm not a participant in these these actions. And so for now, at least, I see that as my role. And I do think that my platform is much bigger because of that. Um, You know, there was one scientists who was involved in the IPCC, who at the time had been actively involved in scientist rebellion and uh, climate activism. And it was challenging for the IPCC. And I think, I'm not saying that I won't in the future at some point perhaps participate in activism, but I won't be studying it while I do. And right now, I think my strength is really in providing the data that I have that you can only get from being out in the streets. And certainly I'm sympathetic to the cause. Um, I'm not sure what the best tactic is, but I, I do know that we certainly need many more people raising their voices to try to stop the climate crisis because things are getting bad. Dana Fisher, professor of sociology at University of Maryland and non-resident senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. We could keep talking. This is fascinating. Thank you. You really brought a lot of light to this. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me, Greg. Coming up... What drives a scientist to get out of their lab and into the streets? The speed with which we're approaching these irreversible tipping points in our Earth system really impressed upon me like, okay, I can't, I can't just keep doing the same thing over and over. That's up next. For this week's show, we also asked you what got you involved with climate issues. We're going to hear a few messages we received from Philip, Andrew, and Olga. 
My father was an engineer at Shell Oil Company for 35 years. And when I was a kid, he was already telling me that we need to switch to alternative fuel because we're going to make the atmosphere warmer. This was 1974, 76. Uh, no, no one had any idea. So I'm the father of a four-year-old, and last summer, when she was three, I read in the New York Times about a group of toddlers, four-year-olds, five-year-olds, dressed like superheroes, and their parents, who went to the CEO of a big investment bank's summer house and said they really wanted him to be a superhero on climate, not a supervillain. Although I've been active in environmental issues for many years, seeing a YouTube presentation of a young Greta Thunberg speaking before the UN moved me to tears. She was, it was just heart-wrenching to see a 14-year-old kid so passionately concerned about what was going on in the world and how political leaders were not acting. Those are powerful. And what strikes me, Ariana, is those are all very personal human-to-human connections that activated and motivated those people, which is also what activated people on marriage equality, civil rights, and other issues. It's that human connection. Yeah, and the irony here is that we're all affected by climate, every single one of us, and we're going to be increasingly affected in the future. But because of the way climate can feel distant and kind of like it's affecting others, it can be harder to have that personal connection. So it's nice to hear from these listeners about how they've you know, been motivated. And we do want to thank those who called in and left their messages with us. We're hoping to get more of those in the future. I also spoke with two activists who approached their work in slightly different ways as Dana Fisher would call them, a shocker and a disruptor. A bit later, I'll speak with Alana Cohen, lead organizer with Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard and co-founder of Fossil Free Research. She fits more in the disruptor category. But first, let's hear my conversation with Earth scientist and climate activist Rose Abramoff. Rose spent years studying climate's impacts on different ecosystems, and that motivated her to take action And then she paid a price for that climate activism. She was fired after protesting at a convention of Earth scientists. When I was a postdoc in Lawrence Berkeley National Lab in California, I was working on this warming experiment um, in Utkiegvik, which is the northernmost city in the north slope of Alaska. And this is a place where it's supposed to be, the soils are supposed to be frozen all the time. They're called permafrost soils, but the active layer, which is the unfrozen layer of that soil is getting deeper and deeper each year. And um, I went up there for two field seasons to help out with this warming experiment and just seeing the landscape, the, the land literally collapsing after it's melted and forming these slumps. You know, just looking at it without knowing what it is, it may not look so devastating, but knowing what that landscape is supposed to look like and then seeing what it is, like it always basically brings me to tears to think about. A lot of climate scientists really struggle, I think, with the interpretations of their data, like what it means for humanity. But for me, it was like, When I was actually interacting with those landscapes, that's when it became real for me. Scientists can sometimes be thought of as buttoned up, um, maybe even a little not exciting, perhaps. But Scientist Rebellion is a group of scientists that are participating in nonviolent civil disobedience. Why did you choose to join that group? 
it's interesting that you're you started with a characterization, which I totally agree with, of scientists as being really buttoned up, rule following people, because I really identify with that in many ways. And it almost reminds me of, you know, the um old there was a slogan that I saw on poster boards during the March for Science era that said, you know, even the introverts are out here or something like that. You know, like it's so bad. <laughs> even the introverts are out here. And so and I feel like that's very much the um kind of like cultural implication behind scientist rebellion that it's so bad. Like even the scientists are out here, the scientists who are, you know, not supposed to have political opinions or at least public political opinions um, and who are supposed to be, you know, calm and measured and just giving you the facts. It's gotten to the point where like even we cannot, you know, maintain our composure because, yeah, we don't want to be in the streets. We want to be, you know, doing math in a quiet room. So, um, well, I mean, maybe not everybody, but, but that is, you know, that is many of our happy places and not necessarily being, you know, chained to government infrastructure or what have you. For me, joining Scientist Rebellion and joining the climate activism movement in general is really a result of all of the research that's come out over the course of my career out of serving as one of the reviewers of the sixth assessment report, the most recent United Nations climate report, and just like reading those passages which deal with the carbon budget that we have left, the amount of time that we have left, the speed with which we're approaching these irreversible tipping points in our earth system really impressed upon me like, okay, I can't, I can't just keep doing the same thing over and over, which was at up till that point, basically like education, you know, like community engagement in the sort of traditional sense. I felt like I, I needed to try newer, untried things to, to see what would work. I sort of felt like we needed to take experimentation to like now is the time to try every possible avenue for progress. In this episode, we're exploring different types of activism and how they affect change, You've chained yourself to the White House gate and have been arrested three times for nonviolent protest. Which of those actions in your mind has been most impactful in terms of trying to accomplish the change we've been talking about? It's one of the main things that I often return to is, you know, which tactics are the most impactful. And I think that there are multiple ways to measure impact. So there's, you know, media impact, like how much of a media splash did it make? How much awareness did it create? And then there's political impact. Like, did we actually change any policies? And I think the answers are a little bit different depending on the metric that you're using. So chaining myself to the White House gate, for example, created a lot of media impact um, just because it was dramatic in itself. And it was also coupled with this very large mobilization of hundreds of scientists all around the world taking action on the same day. And then there's, you know, political impact, which I would probably assign to um, a coordinated action we did that was targeting luxury emissions. So a lot of scientists, again, in a coordinated effort, protested private jet terminals. Of course, we haven't seen any policy movement against private jets in the United States, to my knowledge. But for example, shortly after our private jet actions, which occurred in November of 2022, France moved to ban short haul flights. This was something that was already in the pipeline, but really like gained strength, I think, as a result of the actions we were taking. And then recently, 
just earlier this month in early April, the Schiphol Airport, which was the location of one big Greenpeace organized and scientist rebellion contributing nonviolent direct action on private jets. You know, there were people like riding bicycles on the tarmac. It was a really fun action. Um, That airport recently proposed a, a ban on private jets by 2025. And so like these are kind of real policies that I don't think would have happened without the actions that we had taken, you know, coupled with like other political work. To me, having campaigns that are coordinated to the extent that's possible, like in time and space, like having multiple groups in different locations to get that larger media impact, and then also coordinating with like the political arms of the movement um, that are sort of working on the inside to get to get things passed can make things more impactful. But yeah, often it's really hard to say, you know, for example, there's been kind of a consistent um, effort by um, groups in in D.C., like Extinction Rebellion D.C. and Declare Emergency, and a lot of like many groups that I you know can't can't remember to try and get President Biden to declare a climate emergency or to shut down the Willow Project. And, you know, of course, despite all of those efforts, neither of those policies have come to pass. Although you could also claim partial victory by saying, well, you know, the president mobilized the Defense Production Act, the president, you know, put forth the, you know, the infrastructure bill has a lot of interesting stuff in it. So there are wins we could claim and, and there are wins that we can't claim and sort of like predicting hurricanes. It's a little bit impossible to say, you know, like we contributed to this by, you know, some percentage. You were fired from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory after protesting at the American Geophysical Union meeting in December of 2022. Can you tell us what led to your decision to protest and then what happened after? Sure. Um, This is a good example of an action that had a much larger effect than I thought it was going to have. So my colleague Peter Thomas and I um, were attending this um, earth science meeting. It's a meeting that we commonly attend um, to present our scientific research. So we were both planning on attending this meeting anyway and thought, okay, well, this is the largest meeting of earth scientists, including climate scientists. And so this is sort of the largest agglomeration of people who really understand this issue and could be more active, you know, could take a greater role either in direct action or just in advocacy on this issue, you know, that we really largely aren't seeing right now or up to this point to the extent that we think there needs to be action. And so we thought, okay, what's a way to sort of convince people to take greater action? So we thought, okay, the plenaries are extremely well attended and often very cool. And so let's let's hold up a banner at one of the plenaries and, you know, take about 30 seconds. We didn't want to interrupt the program itself and just make a plea. Basically said, you know, scientists have such leverage and public credibility and power really to communicate. And let's use that and find a way to take action. That was basically the message. And of course, because we were doing something which was unplanned and unsanctioned and, you know, arguably disruptive, we were thrown out of that conference. My employers essentially fired me for doing a a personal thing on work time because I was at this conference, you know, presenting my research under the auspices of Oak Ridge National Lab, um, which is what I was doing for the first half of the week was, you know, chairing sessions and presenting posters. 
And so, yeah, that was their reasoning, reasoning, which, you know, I understand, but I think it's certainly subjective. It, it definitely created a little bit of a firestorm in the scientific community about, you know, what are scientists' free speech rights um, and, you know, where do they end? A lot of people got really nitpicky <laughs> about sort of like, did I break the rules or did I not break the rules? But I think the more interesting question is, you know, let's assume for the moment that I was at least pushing against what the rules were. And, and why, like, why did I feel compelled to do that is to me the more interesting question. Rose Abramoff is an earth scientist and climate activist. Thank you for joining us on Climate One. Thank you. Let's hear from another climate activist who's taken a variety of different approaches. Alana Cohen is lead organizer of Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard and a co-founder of Fossil Free Research, a group dedicated to getting fossil fuel industry money out of university research. As part of Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard, She's engaged in every kind of action, from staging fake oil spills to filing a legal complaint with the Massachusetts Attorney General. The mock oil spills are so fun and dramatic, very sticky, that I will say, but a um, really good way of galvanizing public attention. When we stormed the field of the Harvard-Yale game in 2019, which was a protest I helped coordinate to call attention to the need for divestment at these two incredibly elite universities, it was this huge galvanizing moment for the divestment movement nationally. And getting the chance to help organize that and then to, to be there in person to see all of this incredible support from the folks who were in the stands of that game when we disrupted and all the support that was outpoured afterwards was amazing. But I do think um, our legal complaint, which I helped write, was a very key turning point in winning divestment at Harvard and has since proven to be a really effective strategy at other campuses around the country. There have been about a dozen or so complaints similar to ours that were filed in the time since we went to the attorney general calling for Harvard to divest. And when Harvard announced its divestment, I mean, it basically quoted verbatim the crux of our legal argument, which is that it actually has a fiduciary duty. The Harvard Corporation has this duty to invest in a way that is in alignment with the university's charitable mission. And that is not investing in fossil fuels, which are destroying, you know, young people's futures and putting planet and communities in peril. In 2021, Harvard admitted those investments in the fossil fuel industry were incompatible with the university's mission. It's now allowing its investments to expire. What did you think and feel personally when Harvard announced its divestment from fossil fuels? You know, in, in some sense, I was really surprised, to be honest, because it was such a hard fought campaign. I mean, my peers and I, who came in in the fall of 2018, relaunched the, the campaign then and just had years of tireless organizing. But really, we were building on the work of students, alumni, faculty who had been organizing since, you know, 2012, 2013. So this divestment, this this achievement, um, which was, you know, historic nationally and internationally was a decade <laughs> in the making. Um, and so it was almost just hard to believe when I like just opened my email one day in class and started getting all these messages from my fellow organizers that Harvard had finally committed to divest this $53 billion endowment. But I think the other thing I really felt was just this deep sense of gratitude to all of the people that I've organized with. It was a real, it, the moment was a testament to the power of what people can achieve when we work in grassroots ways and when we persist and when we get creative and think outside of the box in order to move these incredibly intransigent and antiquated institutions like Harvard that, you know, are kind of part and parcel um, in some ways of the carbon economy as it stands right now. As you mentioned, getting the university to divest its fossil fuel holdings took over a decade of pressure. As you look at ahead at all the other steps that need to be taken uh, in the climate transition or energy transition, what do you think of that decade-long timescale? And what kinds of activism do you think are appropriate relative to the urgency that you and others feel? For many of us in the divestment movement, certainly for myself, we've always recognized that divestment 
is a crucial step, but it's also only a first step. And it's really a baseline for institutions like Harvard to align themselves with a just and rapid global energy transition. And what really needs to come next is a complete severing of ties to oil and gas majors that are in working on projects and investing in the kinds of infrastructure every single day that is just locking in absolutely unfathomable levels of planetary warming. And so by cutting ties, I mean, one, and this is the place where I, I personally work the most, um, adopting fossil-free research policies. So preventing fossil fuel companies from being allowed to engage in research partnerships and to fund research around the climate transition when we know that that creates a systemic risk of bias in research outcomes, when we know that fossil fuel companies are relying on this research to further their agendas and to legitimate themselves in the public eye. And then, of course, secondly, kicking big oil out of on-campus recruiting, stopping these companies from being able to basically create a pipeline for youth to enter dead-end jobs that are inimical to their own future well-being. And then, yeah, going further and just really making sure that university campuses are spaces that are dedicated to the development of tomorrow's leaders and spaces to share and produce and expand knowledge of real genuine climate solutions that respond to community concerns and that are accountable to the public rather than be places that are embracing these companies that have agendas completely opposite to what we need to achieve. So for fossil-free research, what tactics are you using and why those tactics? Fossil-free research is exciting because it's new and it's polarizing in the ways that divestment was really in like 2012 in the sense that it provokes conversation among really important decision makers about how they are or are not going to engage with the fossil fuel industry, this pariah industry. So part of what we're doing is just continuing to raise public awareness and to spread the narrative of fossil-free research through op-eds, through media coverage, through direct actions that galvanize public attention. We've done multiple international days of action now where we've coordinated protests and rallies and occupations across campuses spanning from Boston, where I am, to London in England, Toronto in Canada, and continuing to build our outreach to campuses that are all over the U.S. and beyond in order to have a really, really strong and active grassroots coalition. But we're also looking very specifically into how different parts of certain universities or which universities in particular might be first movers in terms of adopting fossil-free research policies. And we've already seen some really exciting momentum around this in the past year alone. So most recently, a university in Amsterdam actually placed a moratorium on fossil fuel industry funding for climate research, specifically from companies that are unaligned with the Paris Agreement. I mean, that's a really exciting first-of-its-kind fossil-free research policy, and it really came in direct response to student, faculty, and community activism. We've seen some progress here in the U.S. with Princeton announcing its disassociation commitment, which involved cutting off its most long-standing research partnership with ExxonMobil. Of course, the commitment doesn't go far enough, but, you know, we have these increasingly promising signs and also the the incredible precedent of divestment commitments at all these universities that we're working with. It's totally absurd at this point in time that any university can, like Harvard, can commit to divest and say, these fossil fuel companies are so morally reprehensible that we're not going to invest in their business models, but then turn around and welcome these companies into spaces on campus that are critical, again, for shaping public discourse, for media discourse, and ultimately shaping policy around the climate crisis when we know these companies simply can't be trusted and these universities themselves have admitted that. So when do you decide to move from a tactic like getting alumni to sign petitions to more direct action? That shift is something that is super context dependent. So for example, you know, at Harvard, 
we were working in a place for these past few years where we simply knew that administrators were only going to come to the table with us in bad faith if they came to the table at all. And so that was really liberating because what it meant was we were able to do incredible radical direct actions like the Harvard-Yale game protests that were unprecedented because we knew what we were working with was largely a public pressure campaign. It was about making sure that Harvard's reputation would suffer so much from remaining intransigent about divestment that it would ultimately just cost more for the university to maintain that stance than to um, actually embrace what the community had been calling for. And then, of course, we sort of combine that with uh, legal activism, which is this innovative tool that I, I'm excited to see more parts of the climate movement using now, actually, just creating a sense of real liability for Harvard if it didn't divest. That was something we turned to when we realized that we had we'd actually gone as far perhaps as we could really go with the kinds of direct actions that galvanized was public pressure and needed to add a new dimension to it. But by contrast, you know, I think there are institutions where it's possible to have real dialogues about divestment, where there are administrators and so many people on the inside who who want to do the right thing. And we just simply weren't in that place. So definitely, I think what, what is critical for student activists and for divestment activists and people in this space is thinking about, you know, what levers of power are available to you? What pressure points do you want to access? But also, how do you want to go about doing that? Is there space for meaningful conversation, like good faith engagement on these issues? Or is there no space for that? And like, what, you know, that makes a huge difference in the kind of tactics that it makes sense to adopt on every different campus. Alana Cohen is lead organizer of Fossil Fuel Divest Harvard and co-founder of Fossil Free Research. Alana, thank you so much for chatting with us and um, we'll be watching what you do in the future. Thank you. On this Climate One, we've been talking about the many different types of climate activism. Climate One's empowering conversations connect all aspects of the climate emergency. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your pods. Talking about climate can be hard, difficult, sometimes depressing and awkward, and it's critical to address the transitions we need to make in all parts of society. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Many people have done it recently. You can do it right now on your device. You can also help by sending a link to this episode to a friend. By sharing, you can help people have their own deeper climate conversations. Brad Marshland is our senior producer. Our managing director is Jenny Park. Ariana Brocious is co-host, editor, and producer. Austin Cologne is producer and editor. Megan Basili is our production manager. Wincy Shade is our development manager. And Ben Testani is our communications manager. Our theme music was composed by George Young. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.